Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I uh, want to check first to make sure everybody can hear. Is it all right? Okay, great. So I'd like to take a step back from um, the level that we're talking about this um, afternoon, this morning, with the detail level of the spleen and the red blood cells and all of that, uh, to take a step back and reflect a little bit about the bigger context of what it is that we are up to here on retreat, uh, on the cushion, the chair, the bench. And then we'll kind of come back again to the parts of the body and all of that. So this word uh, Dhamma that was mentioned in the beginning of the retreat, to take refuge in the Dhamma, and uh, we talked about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Uh, What does this word Dhamma mean? How is this related to what we're doing when we're trying to focus on our liver or uh, brain or feces? So the Dharma, one of the translations of the words that I like is that of uh, nature or truth. And uh, Dharma can be also translated as like the truth of the way things are. And this is something that the Buddha discovered uh, through his own uh, meditative experimentation, you could say, um, but that is already there as nature. So that which was revealed to him and which all of these practices, uh, all of the underlying teachings that we're describing are aiming towards is to have us all realize ourselves as part of nature in some way. So have us all understand and recognize something that's true uh, about the world, about experience, about the way things work, uh, about the way we perceive ourselves. And in understanding that, in realizing that, that we can live in greater alignment with this. And the more alignment we live with, uh, in alignment that we live with this truth, then uh, the less we suffer. So that could be some sort of large scale summary of what we're up to. So trying to understand the truth of how things are, trying to recognize this through our direct experience. And as we recognize this, and in some ways kind of true up to that, then there's less friction in our life from the ways in which we would ordinarily resist that or live as if something that's true is not actually true. So uh, you may have noticed that it's getting colder. I noticed this. And uh, today is actually the last day of summer. Yeah, so uh, tomorrow about 1 p.m. is the uh, fall equinox. So if my uh, memory of um, early geography is correct, this is like, you know, our hemisphere, northern hemisphere, was tilting more towards the sun, and now it's come to basically sort of like midpoint. And then starting tomorrow at 1 p.m., we're going to start tilting away the axis, right? Uh, Which means the days will be getting shorter and shorter and probably becoming uh, colder, darker, etc., 
sorry to bring you these uh, tidings. <laughs> but I noticed, for example, for me, the last time I was here was in July. Uh, I taught a retreat, 10-day um, retreat here in July. And it was very hot at that time. And the residue of the, the dryness is still here, you can see. The grass is all yellow and things like that. So for some reason, even though I did actually check the weather uh, before I came here, I was kind of operating under this illusion that it was going to be like July. And so uh, mostly, like I brought all short sleeve shirts, including this Hawaiian shirt that I'm wearing here today. Uh, and it's really like not, uh, it's not good for, <laughs> it's not good for the weather, right? And so this is a simple example of, uh, you know, learning to live in alignment. Like if I had uh, been willing to face the changing weather and um, bring appropriate clothes, I would suffer less, right? <laughs> now, it's, it's helpful, I think, to recognize that there's ways in which we have learned things about nature uh, through our lives, too. Like we have learned things about the way things work. Uh, and some of them are so natural to us now that we don't even have to think about them. Right? So an easy example to think of about this is um, the law of gravity. So the law of gravity is something that uh, describes the way things work in the physical world. And uh, as babies, we don't know about this law. Like it doesn't seem like babies know about this. And so sometimes you see babies doing various uh, like kind of experiments uh, playing with uh, the physical world and learning about this, right? the law of gravity. So usually this is done with the adults in tow, but like they'll do something like, uh, you know, be in their high chair and then drop something, and then they'll see like, oh, look, like that seemed to fall, right? And then, oh, what if you do it on this side here? Like, oh. same thing happens, right? Like, what if you're not looking and then... <laughs> oh. Same thing happens, right? So after a while, you get the picture, right? Like if you try to place something in midair, right? Like this. Uh, uh, it's likely going to be drawn inextricably to the ground and uh, there'll be broken glass and splashed water and these guys will get wet up here and a mess, right? So once I understand the law of gravity, I can know like, okay, it's better to put it on some surface like this. If you have more sophistication, you could think, okay, this is slanted surface, so better put it over here, flat surface. Um, and basically you live with less uh, strain, stress, strife, like messiness, right? And if occasionally it happens sometime that, you know, you accidentally have something fall like that, then you understood the principle. So you could just pick it up and put it back, right? So you don't have to add, have this added friction of taking it personally. So I wouldn't have to feel like, why me? Why now? Why did that happen? Right? Uh, like, it's not like that with gravity. It's just like the way things work. And uh, it's not personal to me. It's not like I did something, uh, you know, particular to make that happen. I don't have to understand the mathematical formula for it. I don't have to understand, is somebody running that? You know, is there like a boss in charge of that? Right? We don't know. It doesn't even matter. Like, all I have to do is understand how things operate in this way and then learn to live in alignment with that. So most of us, um, you know, as adults, have basically learned to live in alignment with that. Uh, and I would suggest that there are these other, maybe more subtle laws about the way things operate in the world uh, that we haven't learned yet. And, and that's what we're learning through the practice. And that's what we're trying to understand uh, through the meditation practice. 
And retreat is really a great place and a great opportunity to be able to have the time, the energy to apply curiosity, to understand some of these underlying principles about the way things operate and the ways in which we are acting out of alignment with that and thus having unnecessary strain, stress, uh, suffering in our life. So thus we uh, take on these practices and the Buddha and um, you know, compassion gave a lot of different practices for us to understand um, what are some of these principles, how do things work. The practices that we're doing here uh, on this retreat are part of this um, broader set of practices in the Satipatthana Sutta. So foundations of mindfulness uh, or establishments of mindfulness. Those of you who have practiced uh, in other retreats will recognize the, some of the ones about uh, paying attention to the breath in different ways, which we've covered a little bit here. Um, paying attention to, uh, some of them are the elements. Um, we pay attention to mind states. Uh, we learn to pay attention to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral sensations. And then um, this particular one that we're um, working with is in some ways kind of an unusual one about the 32 parts of the body. So it's within this uh, set of practices about the um, mindfulness of the body. And I want to read to you the section just before it, uh, which we're also kind of trying to practice, and then a, a little bit excerpt from this part. So these teachings are ones that the Buddha, this historical person uh, in 600 BC or so uh, actually gave verbally to a group of people and then it was passed on orally for hundreds of years and then eventually written down uh, and now here it is in translation for us in English. So this is uh, section three of this uh, aspect of the body. So practitioners, a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending their limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing their clothes, uh, carrying their, clo their robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. In this way, they abide contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, both internally and externally, uh, and they abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. So uh, this is quite a comprehensive list of uh, human activities. So you know we don't have uh, urinating and defecating on the schedule, but uh, you can see the recommendation is that you bring mindfulness to all of the activities of life, everything. So eating, getting dressed, uh, using the bathroom, uh, moving around. And this is a real help for uh, the practice of meditation and for uh, giving yourself the best chance to understand these kind of underlying laws of how things work. Now the Qigong is a really good uh, support for this because you're practicing different kinds of movements. 
of the body. And then hopefully you could try to employ that in some way, even for the other movements when Marcy isn't there instructing you what to do. So uh, you're putting on the shoe activity, right? So like what if that was actually like a Qigong movement? What if that was actually a movement that you practiced with full awareness as much as possible? Maybe you have putting on the shoe activity. No, not yet, maybe, no, yeah. Uh, or putting on your jacket, right? Or even the very mundane things of brushing your teeth or uh, laying yourself in the bed, you know, just allow that all of it, all of the time in retreat to be an opportunity to practice full embodiment. Like what would that be like to be fully embodied? What would that be like to be fully present It's kind of a radical notion, a radical practice in that way. So then on to this next part, uh, which is the uh, specific kind of practice that we're doing. So uh, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of it or excerpt. So a practitioner then uh, reviews the same body up and down from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, bounded by skin, And then the reflections are, in this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nail, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrows, kidney, heart, liver, diaphragm, etc. So the whole list that we're going through like that. And then the um, metaphor that's used is, uh, just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends full of many sorts of grain, like hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, white rice. And a person with good eyesight could open it and review it thus. Oh, this is hill rice, this is red rice, these are beans, these are peas, this is millet, this is white rice. So too a practitioner reviews in the same way the body. In this way they abide contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, both internally and externally, and abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This too is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. So this is kind of a, a, an unusual thing that we're doing, you know, to regard this physical body that we usually take to be me, very, very personally, uh, in the same way that you would regard looking into a bag of different grains. So why is this helpful to do? What's helpful about it in that way? Because you might think like, well, obviously I can do that with a bag of grains because I'm not the bag of grains, but I'm me, right? This is me. That's been clear. Like, what are you talking about this? So part of the discoveries that we can make is that there are ways that we habitually perceive the world that may be erroneous. So just as if you didn't understand gravity and you would continue to act as if that didn't exist, uh, that would be an erroneous way to be in the world. So this identity that we have, this idea that we have of ourself uh, as being here, like so clear, so apparent, this is me, this is Anushka. So we have this opportunity to examine that, to explore that with awareness. And even conceptually in this particular practice to learn about like what's actually true about that. So the Buddha is suggesting that uh, 
in the way we usually take ourselves to exist, uh, this may not be the whole story. Let's say at least minimally that. This may not be the whole story. So in other uh, uh, teachings, the Buddha says that a noble practitioner does not regard a form of the body as self, the self as possessing form or owning form, the form as in the self, or the self as in the form. And you can actually go through that with each different aspect of the body that we have been contemplating. So for example, the noble practitioner does not regard hair as oneself, oneself as possessing hair. That might be a little trickier. Uh, Hair as in the self, or self as in the hair. So probably three of those you could be okay with, right? The probably the one that is the hardest to get would be the self as possessing hair. So that sounds like a way that we usually talk about ourself, right? Like this is my hair, I'm going to get my hair cut, I'm going to change the color of my hair, right? But as Bob pointed out uh, when he went through this aspect, uh, our hair doesn't always behave the way we want it to. Like, if I was actually the owner of my hair, uh, could I not make it do exactly what I wanted it to do? Could I not put it in a certain position and it would stay there? (laughs) (laughs) Could I not get a good haircut and keep it like that (laughs) in some way, right? Uh, Could I not prevent it from changing colors in ways I don't want it to, right? So my hair now is starting to get gray in the temple area and other places, and then the gray hair, it turns out, some of you already know this, is like a different consistency than the other hair. So it behaves diff- just differently. Like it doesn't comb the same way or uh, it doesn't operate the same way with the you know, hair product you might use or um, it grows at different lengths and speeds and all this. So yeah, if I owned my hair, if I was the possessor of my hair in some real way, like all this stuff wouldn't be happening, right? Like, I could have fixed it in some way. Now, the, the way that we've been going through these different sets, you know, the first set uh, was this one, um, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, that is usually the stuff that we most identify with um, visually on the surface as me. Right? So, yeah, most people would colloquially be able to identify a picture of themselves, right, your face as you. And now I understand there's being some um, technological way where you're, like, your phone is going to be able to identify you based on those factors too. Right? But supposing like you took a, a cut of your hair and uh, you know we tack them up all along the wall, maybe you'd be able to identify from that hair you know, if we mixed them around, like which one is yours. But maybe you wouldn't. Right? Uh, same thing with body hair, right? you uh, took your body hair or fingernails. You know, if we all took clippings from our fingernails and threw them into this bell, right? And then if we were like, okay, everybody kind of find your own, right? (laughs) It would be very difficult to find that, right? And maybe if you had some fingernail paint, but that would be cheating a little, right? Uh, So it's like, yeah, once that's taken off here, like, is that really me or mine? Or as Bob said, even when you you get a haircut, after you get a haircut, actually look at the, the floor, you know, of the barber or hair salon and see like, oh, do I identify with this now? You know, is this me or mine in some way? 
And maybe you do a little bit when it's kind of scattered around, but see when they sweep it into the dustpan, right? Like see when they put it into the trash bin with all the other hair, you know? Are you lunging for that? Like me, my hair, right? (laughs) We're not, right? And yet when it's here, we can be very identified with it and we can suffer a lot as it changes, uh, as it behaves and misbehaves, uh, as we think people like it or don't like it. And this is all this unnecessary friction. So this physical body is just part of nature. You know, it's just like the trees and the uh, grass and everything. But we identify with it specifically as me and mine, and then that causes suffering. Now, uh, earlier today, one of the uh, fellow practitioners was um, talking about describing their experience with the meditation um, about uh, one of the parts of the body and about blood and the, you know, when thinking about the blood of other people that it was okay but then when thinking about uh, like one's own blood that it was uh, like disturbing and uh, like got queasy and it's, it's really good to notice those things like uh, to notice that and then to be curious about that because in that case also it's like oh there's some identification with this liquid right, in a certain way and again, with blood, if you took out vials of blood from everyone, put them around, like we wouldn't be able to probably identify, oh, this is me, this is mine, right? Uh, unless it's labeled. Um, but because of this conceptual overlay, it's basically a, an aspect of perception of the mind that is temporary, that arises and that passes away, we are identified with and then we suffer. And when the body, which is part of nature, subject to getting older, subject to changing, uh, and eventually subject to death. Uh, When any of that happens, we suffer because of our identification with the body. So the Buddha says, for the noble practitioner, despite the change and alteration of form, their mind does not become preoccupied or agitated by this change. It's as if someone were to gather up grass, twigs, and branches uh, and actually today, one of the uh, caretakers had gathered up some branches and I think thorny, uh, like thorn, thorny stems and stuff. So if that stuff was gathered up and that if there was, was going to burn that, would you think, oh no, that's us that's being burned? <laughs> so no, you wouldn't think that because uh, you don't identify that as yourself. So even so, says the Buddha, whatever isn't yours, let go of it for your long-term welfare and happiness. And then what isn't yours? And then he goes through. And the real answer is everything is not yours. In this case, we're focusing on the physical form, but it also includes even your thoughts, emotions, perceptions, and even the knowing itself. So none of that is you or yours. So I know that Christian talked some about um, impermanence and uh, the three characteristics last night. So I want to reinforce that for you since we're doing the parts of the body with some science too. And since I gave you sort of the bad news about it getting colder and darker, um, this article you may perceive to be good news, which is your body is younger than you think. So this is from the New York Times, um, an article from 2005. 
So there was apparently a, a new way of um, basically dating cells, so understanding the age of cells that was discovered uh, and then applied to different areas of the body. And it was a surprise. So although people may think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux as old cells are discarded and new ones are generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by its cells. The cells lining the stomach last only five days. The red blood cells, bruised and battered after traveling nearly a thousand miles through the maze of the circulatory system, last only 120 days or so before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis or the surface layer of the skin is recycled every two weeks or so. The reason for this quick replacement is that this is the body's saran wrap. Uh, it can be easily damaged by scratching or solvents or wear and tear. As for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass your lips, its life on the chemical, warfront, chemical warfare front is quite short. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days, so one to two years. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but are far from permanent. Uh, even the bones endure nonstop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone dissolving and bone rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So impermanence. You know, even that which feels the most solid and permanent and me-ish is actually just this constant, shifting, changing kaleidoscope you know, in this physical body. So there's nowhere to stand, there's nothing to hold on to in all of this. And certainly there's a way in which the designation of like, oh, this is me, is a concept that can be useful. But notice how the concept arises differently at different times. You know, the idea of who you are. So here's some examples that might have come up during your time here. So uh, I'm terrible at meditation. I'm a terrible meditator. I can't do this. I should just pack it up and go. I'm a great meditator. I'm the best one here. <laughs> I'm so good at this. Maybe I'll go to a monastery like Bob did. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, right? And these can happen in rapid succession, right? <laughs> or uh, sometimes it could be like, wow, I'm so smart. Or in the next moment, it's like, oh, I'm so stupid, right? Uh, like, oh, I'm so clumsy. Like, oh, I'm uh, like very graceful in my movements. <laughs> Qigong, so totally graceful, right? So on and on, and you have an identity and relationship to others. So sometimes you might be in a group of people and you feel like, wow, I'm the youngest person here. And sometimes you're in a group of people and you feel like, wow, I'm really old, like I'm the oldest person here. Right? Sometimes you're in a group of people and you're very aware of some way in which you are different right? in identity. And then sometimes you're in nature and suddenly you realize like you're the only human. So there's, you encounter these animals, like a herd of deer or turkeys, and suddenly you're very aware of your humanness, right? Which is how the turkeys see you, right? Or the deer or something like that. So, you know, all of these are relatively true, but they're all coming and going. And the thing is, like, can we hold them lightly? 
know, can we just see them as temporary arisings? You know, maybe useful for a particular interaction, but not permanently there. So there's um, a couple of stories to try to illustrate this more. One is a story from the Buddha's time where um, there's a, a king who is, uh, he hears a lute, uh, like which is a musical instrument playing. And it's beautiful music. And so he says to his uh, subjects, basically, like, like, bring me that, <laughs> right? Like, bring me Hassenpfeffer, bring me that thing, right? So they say, uh, okay. So then they bring him the lute, this musical instrument. And then he's like, no, no, that's not what I wanted. Like, I wanted that, that uh, experience, that uh, music, right? That sound, right? So they say, well, we can't really bring you the sound. I mean, this is the instrument that when someone played it, produced the sound. And he was like, no, no, bring me the sound. And they said, well, we can't really do that. So he's like, oh, I'll find it myself. So then he takes an ax and like, starts to break the lute into pieces, looking for the sound. So he pulls the strings off and hacks the body up and pulls it apart. But uh, yeah, there's no sound to be found, of course. Right? So this is a bit of a, uh, like a, a teaching for us about what happens when you really examine looking for this meanness that's there. Uh, finding this permanent, independent, abiding, unique, controlling self. Everything that we experience through the body, through the mind, and even through the knowing of that, uh, cannot actually be identified as such you know, when we look more closely. Or there's another uh, story. Uh, there's a, a series of, of dialogues that happens with uh, a king named King Melinda. And he's a very curious king. He's like interested in Buddhism and um, this is like later from the time of the Buddha, there's a monk named Nagasena who comes there. And so they have many dialogues about various issues and dharma and this king has many questions. And um, one of his questions is really about this, it's anatta or non-self thing, as many of you have questions about this. And he's kind of perplexed about it, but also um, you can kind of tell from his questions, he's also like a little bit annoyed by this concept. And he's a little bit annoyed by Nagasena also and the, um, the answers to it. So he's asking him about this uh, concept. And he's like, well, so who is Nagasena? Like, what is Nagasena? Like, are you saying it's just a sound? That's, that's just a name? Like, there's nobody there? If there's nobody there, then couldn't someone uh, murder you and you could say nobody got killed? You know, like, what's the meaning of this? Right. So then Nagasena says, well, King... Uh, um, how did you get here to meet me? Like, we know that you wouldn't travel by walking. And he says, oh, I came in a chariot. So then Nagasena says, so, uh, King, can you tell me, um, which is the chariot? Is the chariot the axle? He says, oh, no, the axle isn't the chariot. Is the chariot the wheels? Oh, the wheels isn't the chariot. Uh, is, the, is the chariot the seat? Like, no, the seat is not the chariot. And on and on like this. And, you know, in this uh, modern metaphor, you might have to do it with, like, the Toyota Corolla or something, you know, like, what is that, right? Is it the wheels? Is it the chassis of the car? Is it the windows? Is it the steering wheel? So all of them, it's no to each one of those things. And is it all of them all together? Well, maybe, kind of, but if they were kind of piled up in a pile, like in a junkyard, you wouldn't call that a car or a chariot or, you know. 
So finally he sees like, okay, so this is actually a concept that we're using. So I can't find the chariot in some way by pointing to it, but yeah, it's a designation. It's a temporary designation. So it's useful in this way. Um, in this, but at the same time, it doesn't inherently exist. To bring it back to the body, um, so there are many lists that we have uh, Buddhist teachings. You know that um, Christian went over the uh, five hindrances with you, and you probably heard four noble truths. Here we're doing thirty-two parts of the body. So here's a list of twelve that I think all of you might recognize. This list. So butter beans. Butternut squash, roasted red pepper, <laughs> yellow onions, veggie stock, water, olive oil, thyme, tarragon, roasted fennel, salt, and pepper. Okay. You recognize that? Yeah. So that was the soup we had tonight. <laughs> that was the butternut squash bisque, right? So now at some point, all of these different ingredients were not together, right? So there was some field in which the butternut squash was growing. There was some ground in which the yellow onions were. Uh, there was some spring where the water was coming from. Uh, there was some possibly distant place where they were growing olives. Right? And then you know, at different times there were people doing labor to pick these different herbs and vegetables and the olives and press the olives and different things. and. You can imagine for the soup, there's like all this activity happening, actually many distant places. Then all these vegetables get shipped here, right? By truck, maybe the olives came uh, by plane also or something. And then they got un unloaded. So we see trucks unloading things down by the kitchen. And then the cooks have a menu. Some of you were involved in this. So some of you had your uh, work meditation, chopping this stuff up. And then the cooks put it together in the pot. And then for a very brief time, it existed as butternut squash bisque. Right? And some of you were there during that brief moment it was there. Cook rang the bell. We did a bow. <laughs> right? And then immediately it quickly got doled out into different bowls and then got slurped up by different humans. And now in some way, the butternut squash bisque is both here in the room in... 60 different units, right? <laughs> but it's also not here, right? It also doesn't exist anymore at all. And in fact, all of those ingredients have kaleidoscopically shifted and uh, I think they spend like a few minutes going on your esophagus and then a few hours in your small intestine and then actually a few days in your large intestine uh, before they come out the other end. Uh, and we reflected about the feces, right, in the uh, last batch of them. So, so here's how, like, this idea of, like, well, what's me and what's not me? You know, what is the solidity of any identity of anything? So the soup was all these different things. It came together temporarily as soup. Yeah, that's a useful designation. They listed the ingredients. But then the soup is gone. But in some ways it's not gone. So it's transformed. You know, all of, all of the world is created through conditionality. So now it's becoming the energy through which all of us are listening to the Dhamma talk and practice the meditation. Right? And you can play with this reflection a little sometimes when you go down to the meal, you know, because there's this food there and 
clearly we don't identify it as me when it's on the table, when we put it on our plate, you know, like oatmeal or whatever you get. Uh, Even when it's in your mouth, it seems separate, but then very quickly it becomes not separate, right? Like, where's the me designation between oatmeal and you, or (laughs) butternut squash soup and you, right? So then there's a moment in which we identify with the seeming results of the oatmeal, the squash, the energy. But then at a certain point, when you go to the toilet, it comes out the other side, we very quickly, again, do not identify with that, (laughs) right? That's icky, that's not me, that's not mine, flush, get rid of that quickly as possible, right? So what is that in that trajectory of identification, right? Like, you could identify the whole way through, you know, you could identify, like, we're we're choosing an area and holding to that, and, and yeah, there's a way in which it is temporarily true, but also... I'm trying to suggest there's a way in which our rigidity about those boundaries is uh, somewhat of an illusion. It's a, it's a little bit, um, it's porous in some way. So one um, more area that has been um, interesting to me to learn about lately uh, regarding our bodies and our um, identification uh, that helped me to shake things up a little bit more too is um, in learning about something that's called the microbiome. So apparently this is a sort of new-ish area of research, maybe the last five, ten years or so, in which uh, it's been discovered that we all have... uh, some very large amount of bacterial cells uh, living communally within us (laughs) and not bad ones that are like uh, harming you, but actually that have been there since birth in some way. So um, I'll read you a little bit about this. So we may think of ourselves as just human, but really we're a mass of microorganisms housed in a human shell. Every person alive is host to about 100 trillion bacterial cells. They outnumber the human cells 10 to 1 and account for 99.9% of the unique genes in the body. Our collection of microbiota, known as the microbiome, is the human equivalent of an environmental ecosystem. Although the bacteria together weigh a mere three pounds, their composition determines much about how the body functions and, alas, sometimes how it malfunctions. So here again, you know, our idea of of separation, like here's me and even with regards to, you know, the other, when we create an other, like bacteria or... uh, It's like, oh, actually there's a way in which we're fully part of this symbiotic... Uh, community of organisms. And particularly interesting is I think, like, you notice the way in which the mind also is constantly creating this story of me at the center of the universe. Notice your thoughts as they arise about basically any which subject at all uh, that comes up and how you are the center of the story, right? Like what happened to me, what I'm going to get next, what's going to happen to me next, what might happen to me, what might not happen to me. 
So, but it's really just a matter of perspective because, you know, from the perspective of the hundred trillion bacterial cells, <laughs> like we are not the center of the universe, right? <laughs> like we're even outnumbered, it says here, right? In some way. Okay, a little bit more about this. Um, so um, there's a, a project now of um, mapping these. And uh, apparently until a few years ago, uh, people didn't really understand about them um, but they're actually essential for human life. They're needed to digest food, to synthesize vitamins, to form a barricade against disease-causing bacteria. And there are many more strains that were originally thought. So uh, the microbiome starts to grow at birth. So as babies pass through the birth canal, they pick up some of the mother's vaginal microbiome. Babies are microbe magnets, said this researcher. So over the next two or three years, the baby's microbiomes mature and grow while their immune systems develop uh, in concert. And their immune system learns not to attack these bacteria, recognizing them as friendly. Uh, in adults, the body carries two to five pounds of bacteria, even though these cells are minuscule. The gut in particular is stuffed with them. The gut is not jam-packed with food, it is jam-packed with microbes. Half of your stool is not leftover food, it is microbial biomass. But the bacteria multiply so quickly that they replenish their numbers as fast as they are excreted. And the bacteria also help the immune system, so the best example is uh, for uh, women, the vagina, where they secrete chemicals that can kill other bacteria and make the environment slightly acidic, which is unappealing to uh, microbes that will be uh, unhealthy for you. So now there's this project of um, mapping this, um, these, these systems and they're discovering all kinds of things about how um, microbes in fecal bacteria or in saliva or in all these different areas actually have an impact on even significant diseases like uh, diabetes or heart disease. So it's not even just about like me and my body. There's this whole ecosystem that we're all a part of uh, and not even necessarily like the central part of, too. So there's more to be learned about this and I think this project is in uh, process, but to me it's really interesting to recognize the ways in which, uh, yeah, these discoveries of science can also help us to understand and reinforce these understandings that we can make through our direct experience. And they can help us to question our ideas about who we are and what our place is in the world. So as we are going through these lists of body parts and we're going from the most immediately visible ones that we identify with, and in some ways kind of deeper and deeper into the body in ways that we aren't going to necessarily recognize visually, right, or know what it feels like. We're also in some ways going deeper and deeper into an experience in which we're part of uh, recognizing our humanity. Right? We're recognizing ways in which yeah, our blood, our feces, our small intestines, our stomach, you know, we can't distinguish this from that of others of our species in some ways. Maybe those mapping the microbiome can, right? Uh, but 
there's a way in which like once we get beneath the service, we can start to feel ourselves as um, yeah, kind of miraculous beings with sentience. Right? There's a sentience, there's this aliveness, but even this aliveness is a mystery. So when I talked about the um, systems of the muscles, largely I was talking about the um, muscles that are the, I think they're called voluntary muscles or under our control, like the skeletal, musculoskeletal muscles. But at the same time, there's a whole host of muscles in the heart, in the intestines, and all of the arteries that are involuntary. So there's a whole lot of muscles that are constantly working, you know, digesting and moving blood around and keeping the heart beating and everything. It's just happening seemingly like on its own. So who's the me in that too? Or even with the breath, which it seems like you have some control over. As my friend and colleague Wes Nisker upstairs likes to say, even if you try to hold your breath to make yourself pass out, then you pass out and then you begin breathing again. You fall unconscious, but then the body continues to breathe. So there's a way in which in this, this life is uh, kind of miraculous and mysterious, you know. And as the Buddha said, for all of us, the span of life is unknown. You know, the, the length of our life is unknown. How we pass is unknown. So the more that we can uh, recognize that, it's not to make us more afraid or uh, yeah, it's not to make us feel scared about everything, but actually if that reflection helps to wake us up, like w- wake us up to this experience of life that's here now. You know, wake us up to our ability to become aware, to live more fully embodied lives, to cultivate this awareness that we can bring to our own experience for the sake of gaining insight, as well as to all the people that we meet from now on. So these practices that we're doing here, you know, particularly this 32 parts of the body practice, I was thinking it's, it's like a very rare song that you get to hear. It's, it's a very rare practice to get to learn. And I'm very happy for all of you that you're here to learn this and hear this very rare melody of this. So the causes for our opportunity to be here, including our own good health of our bodies and our minds and the circumstance of our uh, society enough that we can be here is rare. So I encourage you to continue to make the good use of your time to explore this beautiful, miraculous, messy, unique happening of nature and to actually uh, enjoy your practice as well. So thank you for your attention. So you can feel again the sense of your contact with your chair, cushion. If you've lost contact with sense of the body breathing, you can feel that again.
can notice the temperature, however you feel it in different parts of the body. And the aliveness that allows us to feel and to hear. fully wake up to the truth of who we are.